Now I'll invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. We begin a new series in this book this morning. It's on page 801 of your pew Bibles, or if you have the large print edition, it's on page 953. Malachi, or as some like to say, that Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, But he was not Italian, and that is not how you say his name. But I figured I'd go ahead and get the joke out of the way now so that we don't have to bear up under it any longer. We'll be spending the next few weeks uh, looking here in Malachi, looking at the theme that God is at work. We begin here with the first five, five verses. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And we ask that you would take this heavy word from your prophet Malachi, inspired by your spirit, preserved for your people, even us, that you would teach us that you would teach us how it is that you are at work, even in love. Do this, O Lord, that we might leave here transformed people, molded and shaped and refreshed in the love of God in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So we live in a cynical world. There are no shortage of studies to demonstrate and quantify the the growing lack of confidence in our institutions and a growing cynicism in the world generally. We don't believe that our political structures and government structures can care for us anymore. We we even look at, at the scientific establishment and wonder, are they just in it for more grant money? Or are they really trying to tell us the truth? We've even lost faith in our moral institutions. Seeing how church after church, denomination after denomination, 
sees another leader fall into sin, abuse his spiritual authority, and bring disrepute to Christ. There are students who have lost faith in the purpose of the university. There are people like you and me, just ordinary, everyday people who have lost faith in anyone to tell them the real truth. There's always got to be some spin on it, and we long to see through it to what's real. Everything gets politicized. Everything gets criticized. Everything gets run through the lens of cynicism until we become like the man that C.S. Lewis described in The Abolition of Man, the man who sees through all those things until he sees nothing at all. And we're left just with ourselves, cynical and jaded and alone. This is nothing new, though. When Israel returned from exile, they too found themselves growing under the scourge of cynicism. Their institutions were crumbling. They had no king, just a governor appointed by their oppressor, Babylon. The nations around them sought to undermine everything that they did, from building projects to gaining political unity. The rich exploited the poor, even their own brothers. And there was no sense that anything was ever going to happen to fulfill God's promises or purposes in Israel. And the temptation for the people in that time was to just take it on themselves and find their own way. And it's in this era that we find the the origin of the Sadducees, who we find in the New Testament, sought to exert their influence through political means with religion just as a veneer. We see the origin of the Pharisees who sought to, to impose a new moral order. And yet, the cynicism and the hypocrisy and the emptiness of all of that remained. And it's in this cynical age that God raises up the prophet Malachi. We know nothing more about him. But he delivers an oracle. Literally, the word is burden. burden to a cynical and distressed and distraught people. And and with these heavy words, he seeks to bring conviction. He seeks to bring renewal. He seeks to bring refreshment. And it's not a small thing that this heavy burden, this word of the Lord comes not against Israel, There are many prophets that the Lord raised up to deliver a word against Edom, against Assyria, against Babylon. But here, Malachi 
is raised up in the midst of a cynical people who've lost all faith, all hope, all meaning, all purpose, and he brings a heavy but important word to the people of Israel. And he brings that word to us. And in this opening address, God roots all of his words to a cynical people. Every other message that that Malachi is going to deliver, they all have this same foundation. God roots his word to a cynical people in the context of his love. He reminds them that he is still at work. He still has his purposes to fulfill. His promises are yes and amen, and they are all of these things because of his great love for his people. And so, here, in these few short verses, God declares and demonstrates his gracious love for his people in glorious ways. And we're going to look at that this morning, how God has declared his love and how he demonstrates his love for his people in these glorious ways. And so the first thing I want you to do is look at verses 1, 2, and 3 and see how God has declared without qualification his love for his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. But the response of a cynical people who doubt everything, who see through everything, who are always looking for the spin, who are always looking for the other shoe to drop, is how? How is it that you've loved us? What is it you see in us? What is it that we've done for you that would deserve such love? They don't believe that God is telling the truth. It's like that show, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I I cannot stand these shows. But I saw saw a parody of these shows recently that just drives home the point. Like, they they market themselves as as reality TV. But that, like... It's just all about, like, how much time can I get on the camera? How much screen time can I get to advance my career? And so if I have to say, oh, I love you so much. I've only met you 30 minutes ago, but I love you with all my heart. Of course I'll say that. Like, it's, it's just this whole context for, for people to just say whatever needs to be said in order to get what they want. It's empty, and it's meaningless, and it's not real. And if you like it, that's fine. That's on you. But I find it utterly and completely devoid of any meaning and purpose. And the people of Israel heard God's declaration just like that. I've loved you. Why? What what do you get out of this? For what end? To what purpose? In their cynicism, they see God's love 
rooted in and founded on on their actions. God's love is a response to them. And so they ask, how? What is so lovable about us? We've returned from exile. We have nothing. We're not going anywhere. The temple looks so shoddy. The nations around us are still scheming against us. What is it about us that is so lovely and so lovable? And so there were some there who thought that they would try harder. They would do more. They would impress the Lord with their good works. They would not be content to to keep the Sabbath day holy, but they would start that pharisaical tradition of saying, you know, we're not just going to keep it holy. We're going we're to limit how many steps you can take. We're going we're to limit how many words you can utter. We're going to limit all, we're going to put all these extra things in so that God will see how holy we are and we will deserve his love and we will understand the nature of this relationship that we have with him. There were others who thought that they deserved God's love. Just because they exist, like, where are your people? Where is this love that you keep talking about? I deserve it, and you need to act on it. There were others, no doubt, who looked around at their own devastation, how they had been exploited by their own people, exploited by the nations around them, how they were haggard how they had lost everything, how they made this long trek back to the promised land only to find it decimated and destroyed. And they wonder, maybe God doesn't love me at all. Maybe his words are empty because I am worthless. And he is just stringing me along to cast me aside once again. God responds to their cynicism with a declaration of his love that is not rooted in their prior action or status. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What a strange way for God to declare his love for his people. Does it strike you as odd? Does it strike you as strange? And yet what God is doing here is showing that he has rejected Esau. Esau the father of the nation of Edom, a nation that, as we'll consider, is no friend of Israel. But Jacob and Esau, they were brothers. And their father loved Esau the most because Esau was a manly man, because Esau was burly, because Esau could hunt and he could make stew, because he could do all of these things that his father loved. And so his father responded with more love for Esau than for Jacob. 
God says, that's not how my love works. Before either of them were born, before they had done anything good or bad, before there was any tally on their sheets in the book of the record of all that they had done and thought and said, before any of that had come to pass, I set my love on Jacob. And in so doing, what God demonstrates is that his love is a choice that's rooted and founded in him and him alone. This is what the theologians of old called unconditional election. Election is just a word for choosing. We choose when we go to election day. But when God chooses, it's not because you belong to a particular party. It's not because you belong to a particular race or economic class. It's not because you have some certain level of knowledge or background. It's not because you've done anything better or worse. It's not for anything in you at all. And this is good and glorious news. The cynicism in us wants to look at God and say, but why me? What is it that I've done? Why are you paying attention to me? What is it that I've done to earn this affection so that I can do more of it? How how is it that I've gotten your attention so that I can do that more? What is it that I need to do in order to keep your favor upon me? God comes to his people and says, there is nothing that you have done. I have set my love on you. I have chosen you. Though you are weak and frail and sinful, though you have gone astray time and time and time again, though you want to believe with all your heart that this could be true, yeah. You always seek to root it in yourself because you are so selfish. Yet, despite your selfishness, despite your sin, despite your frailty, despite your weakness, before you have done anything, while you were still my enemy, I demonstrated my love for you. I declared my love for you. Rooted in my own being in my own goodness, in my own pleasure, in my love. You can't get around this. If you want to understand why me, any and every effort that you make to find something about yourself, that's more worthy or less worthy, that's more sincere or more desperate, you will find time and time and time again you have put upon yourself a legalistic burden that you will have to keep in order to keep God's love 
But God comes to his people again and again and again, and he says, my love for you finds its origin and its purpose not in any condition, not in anything that you've done, but solely, completely in my mercy. What this means for you, practically, is that when you begin to doubt God's love for you, you have an opportunity to ask why. Maybe you have failed to live up to your own expectations of how you should live as a Christian in this world. And you begin to despise and condemn and judge yourself and think God must see me the same way because I haven't measured up. And God comes to his people whom he loves and says, my dear child, if it depended upon you measuring up, you would have lost my love long ago. Or maybe you are burdened with the shame of of the wickedness that you have perpetrated, of the addictions that have their hold on you, of the habits and routines and ways of thinking that just seem unrelenting. And you say to yourself, there is no way the God of the universe could possibly even care about me, much less love me. Look at the thing. Look at the things that I've He comes to you and says, my dear child, I knew your shame for the foundation of the world. I didn't put my love upon you because you were the best or the greatest or the most wise or the most magnificent. I chose to put my love on you and I knew all of those things about you. Or maybe you have just grown weary of trying and trying and trying and trying and never feeling the affection of God. And you don't feel it. You don't experience it because you have rooted it in yourself. He comes to you and says, rest. Rest in my love. Find joy in there. We are deeply insecure people. Our cynicism springs out of that, no doubt. It's a way for us to exert power over all the things that that make us uneasy. Imagine if your spouse's ex showed up at church one day. And you know, like, they had a pretty serious thing, like, Like, wouldn't you want to hear from your spouse, I love you, I hate them, I can't stand them. They smell funny or whatever. You don't care. All you want to know is they have rejected the other. They have put their love on you. All these other nations, all of these other nations that seem to be prospering makes Israel wonder, has God rejected us? And he says, no. I've rejected them. I've set my love on you. 
He's declared it. It ought to melt a cynic's heart. But he hasn't just told us. He has demonstrated his love. There is in that cynical question, how have you loved us? (laughs) Show me. Where's the evidence of your love? God, we've spent a whole bunch of time in exile. Nothing seems to be going according to plan. is Is this what you think love is? I love the musical, My Fair Lady. Especially the Audrey Hepburn movie version, which just like nailed. There's this whole scene, scene where she sings this song. I'm tired of all the words, words, words. Show me. Show me that you love me. And there's this young suitor who's trying so desperately to, to put his arms around her, to, to hug her, to, to give her a kiss, to, to do all the things that she's asking him to do. But every time he does, she turns away. So, so she doesn't really want him to do this. She's just, she wants love on her own terms. She wants all these people to show her that they love her the way she wants it done on her terms. And we do the same. We look out at the world and it doesn't measure up to our expectations and we think to ourselves, God doesn't love us because he's not doing what I want. And God responds to that cynicism with, look at what I am doing. I decimated Edom. Edom which again, Esau is the father of that country. It's a play on the word red. Edom utterly and completely betrayed Israel when they were being dragged into exile by Babylon. They should have been brother nations united against this outside foe, but they absolutely stomped on the neck of Israel and enjoyed it. God's love for his people is so great. He doesn't let those who make themselves the enemies of his people get away with that. So he decimated Edom. So great is his love for his people that he still guards and defends and protects us from our enemies. But our enemies are not so mild as a nation. Those who have set their sights against the people of God include the devil himself. The the worldly systems that are hostile to God, even our own flesh, our sinful nature, these great enemies that would seek to destroy God's people to alienate them from any relationship with him, God has set his sights on devastating and destroying those enemies. And in Christ, he has done so. For the good news, the announcement of the gospel isn't just words. It is an announcement of what God has done, that he has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took upon himself our sin, 
And while we in this life may remain people who have a a sinful nature, he took out its fangs. He took away its power. And he set us free to follow him without guilt, without shame, without condemnation. He disarmed the worldly powers. And though the nations rage, not even the gates of hell will stand against the church, the people of God, as they follow their Lord to do his work. And there is, even now, evidence that Satan himself is bound. Not that he can't march around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but he cannot stop the advance of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to save souls until the day comes where he is cast into the lake of fire and defeated forever. God does not bear patiently with those who make themselves enemies of his beloved people. We, you look around, you will see again and again and again how he is killing sin in you. How he is making the nations his servant to advance his purposes in this world. And not even the most authoritarian regimes can stop the growth of his church. How even Satan himself, he can roar and he can scream and he can stomp his foot, but he cannot consume those who belong to the Lord. And everything God does, he demonstrates his love. And he promises to do so yet more. Even if they rebuild, I'll tear it down. Even if it looks like everything is arrayed against you, even if it looks like all of God's purposes are no and for naught, even if it looks like all is lost, it's not. I will tear it down. And I will do so because I love you. My And when your eyes see this, you will praise God. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's not just the God of Sunday morning. He's not just the God of my devotional time. He's not just the God of the PCA. He is not just the God of the United States. He is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of the whole entire cosmos. And he is ruling and reigning and bringing all things into good, perfect order for his church, his bride, his beloved people. He is establishing his kingdom. He's not doing all the things that we want him to do because he's doing something greater He is establishing his kingdom and inviting those he loves in freely, without cost, without condition. Do you have eyes to see what God is doing? 
Sometimes we, we have eyes to see the trial he calls us to walk through. And sometimes it's a heavy trial, a hard and burdensome trial. And our eyes get focused on the trial and on ourselves and in our cynicism and in our doubt, we say, this is evidence that God does not love me. But God says to a beleaguered and cynical people, I can use even that trial to kill sin in you, to manifest my glory in you, and to show you my love and compassion and care. that You might know my consolation. That you might know my willingness to abound to you with blessing and kindness, even in the hardest of times. We could say more, but it might be worth ending by trying to answer this question. What's the point of all of this? What is the point of God's love? Why is it that he is working in this way? What is the end goal? What is he trying to accomplish in you or through you? Here's the thing. The point of his love declared and demonstrated is that you cannot encounter it and remain the same. You you, you cannot see the fullness of the love of God and stand before him looking for anything in yourself that deserves it. You can only look at him in awe and wonder. He would love you. When you see his love demonstrated to you, it, it destroys cynicism and leaves you in wonder that my God loves me so much that even in this trial, he has not forgotten me, but he is attentive and abounding to me with love and grace and my need. The point is that God is moving us from cynicism to praise. And there is nothing else that can do that but the love of God. What about this thing that I've done? What about this doctrine that I've learned? What about there, there is nothing in you. When you are the center, you will never be free of your cynicism. You will never be free of your doubt. You will never be free of your sorrow. You will never be free of your grief. But when you see the unconditional, powerful, almighty love of God directed to you, we'll leave you with nowhere to go but awe and wonder and praise and adoration. God's love transforms us in Christ from a cynical people to a people of praise. May he do that in us and through us more and more. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess all too often we look to ourselves to find our 
before you, to find our worthiness before you. And we need so desperately, Lord, to have you turn our eyes away from ourselves into you. That we would see and stand in awe who you are, what you do for a people so undeserving. Heal us from seeking to see evidence of your love on our own terms that's just selfish affirmation of our own worldly aims. Help us to see the glory of your kingdom that you are working to establish and that you are in love welcoming us into. Do this, we pray, that we might be a people who see that God is at work in love, that we are, might be a people who bear witness to a cynical world that God is at work in love. Do this, that Christ might be glorified in us and through us. We ask it in his name. Amen.